Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to the Gospel according to John. We are in week number three of our short Advent series, Christmas Presents. As we go to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great provision for our salvation in Christ. We thank you for your ongoing guidance through the person and work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your word that you have preserved that is before us now. We ask for understanding and ask for um, a growing desire and ability to put your truth into practice. And so, Father, would you open our eyes to see your truth, open our ears to hear your truth, open our hearts to receive your truth, and embrace it, and strengthen our hands and feet to um, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are in a season of unity and peace. But today we're going to talk instead about division and conflict. How would you divide the world? Well, the United Nations says that there are 193 distinct nations, sovereign nations. You can also divide the world into races, and most certainly you can divide the world into different religions. I mean, think about the course in college, world religions. I mean, is there enough time to study all of the various Religions that man has come up with for himself. You know that the uh, census, the 2020 census is going to come up next year. And it's going to be a way to, in addition to kind of uh, bringing together the country and finding out who's there. It's a, it's a way to divide things up. It's this many people here and that many people there. And this many people who have this many in their family and this many people who live in homes they own. It's, it's a way to divide people. Well, our text this morning is kind of a, a census data set where we're going to end up seeing three categories of people. And we'll see that these three categories of people are based on one thing, someone's attitude toward Jesus. If you haven't already read the Something to Think About quote uh, by Sinclair Ferguson, I hope you do after the service. Um, But right in the middle, there's something where he says this, the coming of Jesus is a disturbing event of the deepest proportions. And so, Christmas, this this season, as it were, of unity and peace, really does divide the world because Jesus divides the world. Here we are in Christmas presents. It's based on the prologue to John's gospel, the the first 18 verses, and in particular, verse 14, which we'll get to next week in more detail. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The presence of of Jesus. You see, God's promise to be with his people. It's a great promise and we see that 
in the early pages of the Bible, God has promised to be with his people. And we see the fulfillment of that promise. The promise is made and the promise is kept in the person and work of Jesus. You see, Christmas presents the gift of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christmas presents along with Jesus' promise to always be with his people. We see that in the Great Commission. And lo, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here in the prologue to John's Gospel, John goes back to the beginning. He goes behind the curtain to eternity past to see Jesus, not beginning with his earthly ministry, but rather his eternal identity. John, we've been saying, is so simple Children memorize, for God so loved the world. It's so profound that on our dying breaths, we may ask, read that John 11 passage to me one more time. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. I am the good shepherd, we may want to hear. It's simple, it's profound, it's, it's a swimming pool that's shallow enough for children to wade in and it's deep enough for an elephant to drown in. Remember, John writes his first letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John writes his letter to assure Christians, but he writes his gospel so that people would believe These are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. This prologue of John's gospel is indeed a a, a preview of coming attractions as it presents themes that the gospel of John will unfold. It's a preface to the narrative. It's It's the prologue to the symphony. It invites us in. Now, whereas the rest of John is about Jesus' earthly ministry, again, this prologue is about his eternal identity, who he is, where did he come from. Thus far, we've seen that Jesus is from the beginning as we looked at the first two verses. And then last week, we saw that Jesus is the light and the life. Well, today we'll see that the light was coming into the world, and that brings us to verse 6, and so join with me as I read verses 6 through 13 of John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of the themes that we're going to see today begin is... The attitude of people to Jesus, people that don't recognize him, people that reject him, and yet people that receive 
him. Let's look at, for a moment at verses 6 through 8, the ministry of John the Baptist. Kids, on the Bible quiz question, when it says, who was the last Old Testament prophet? The last Old Testament prophet is John the Baptist. He's a forerunner. He's a man sent from God to announce the coming of the promised Messiah. And now with John on the scene, John the Baptist in the gospel according to John, we're moving now from eternity past into time, into the present. Notice that John came as a witness. That's a noun. To bear witness. It's a verb about not himself, but the light. He came to proclaim and explain for a purpose. And look at the end of verse 7. Why did he do that? So that all might believe. So that all might believe. So the Apostle John has introduced now the ministry of John the Baptist. But picking up in verse 9, let's find out what the Apostle John continues to teach about Jesus. The eternal identity of Jesus. The the Jesus that's going to be coming in the flesh Well, first of all, we learn that Jesus is not recognized. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The true light, that's Jesus. The real light, the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. I... uh, I'm confused these days by lighting. I have to go into Home Depot and before I get the the soft white or the uh, bright light or the daylight, I say, show it to me again. Okay, I've got to see those lights. But then I realize, you know, if I just had a window and it was a, a, a sunny day, I'd have all the light I need. You see, man can come up with light here and light there, some quirky philosophy there and some weird teaching there and it's all light but no John is saying no this is the light that's come from outside of you this is the true light it's not some kind of eastern mysticism that masquerades as light it's the true light it's coming into the world it's it's coming into the world it's referencing to, to, to people all kinds of people long before the incarnation the eternal word was already residing shining in the world not an absentee landlord he created and sustains the world before the incarnation there was the light of beauty truth and goodness in a sinful and fallen world but it was distorted by the fall yet all people have some understanding some experience people are aware and even though they suppress the truth even though they exchange the truth there's nonetheless an awareness and they are accountable if you haven't already done so i would encourage you to read this weekend's devotional in table talk magazine it speaks of the difference between common grace and special grace and in particular how Christians with wisdom and discernment can live in a sinful and fallen world and not compromise the truth. It's an outstanding article because long before the light, the special light, the saving light of Jesus came into the world, there was light from the Creator, from the pre-incarnate Word. 
And what is the response of the world to the light coming into the world? What's the response? Well, they cannot see. They are blind. They did not know Jesus. They did not recognize him. And they ignored him. Years ago, maybe four or five years ago, there was a TV show called Undercover Boss. You might know the premise of it. You know, the important boss ends up donning the uniform of the lowly hourly worker and kind of blending in to see what it's like on the, uh, at the lower levels. I think it was the mayor of Cincinnati, in fact, uh, became a worker for the Cincinnati Sanitation District for uh, a week or so just to, to see it. Um, the greatest story of undercover boss is, is uh, Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia, who died in 1725. He disguised himself as a shipyard worker so he could see how his people were really doing He was not recognized. Peter the Great, the czar, the ruler, was not recognized when he was in the disguise of a shipyard worker. The the mayor of Cincinnati was not recognized when he was in the disguise, as it were, of an hourly sanitation worker. People did not recognize Jesus. Well, let's rephrase verses 9 and 10 in the present tense. The world does not know him. It's true today, isn't it? The world does not know him. All around us are people, although they are totally depraved, that is, there's no part of their humanity that's untouched by sin, twisted and tainted by the fall. Nevertheless, they have glimmerings of light. You've known people who want to fight for justice. Ask them where the notion of justice comes from. You know, people who are going to be jurors on a trial, how do they know guilt or innocence, right or wrong, truth or falsehood? You know, people can deny it all they wish, but you cannot, you cannot suppress that kind of knowledge, that there is truth out there, there is goodness out there, there is beauty out there, there is a right, there is a wrong, there is injustice, there is justice. The true light was coming into the world. Jesus was not recognized. The irreligious are blind. They cannot see. Well, not only is Jesus not known, not only is he unrecognized, not only is he ignored, he is also rejected. Listen to verse 11 again. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus comes to his own people and to his own place a decisive event when the fullness of time had come as Paul writes to the Galatian church in Bethlehem of Judea. It's how Luke starts off when Quirinius was governor of Syria. He comes to his own people and to his own place. Here's a reference to Abraham, the promise to Abraham, a a people for the Lord and a place for the Lord's people. The Jewish people are chosen out of all people to be a particular people. Surely those people will recognize and receive him. They have prepared for him. They have been preparing for him for a long time. They didn't receive him. They rejected him. This is the response of his own people, the religious people. Now, whereas the irreligious, the pagans, cannot see, 
the, irrelig- the religious do not want to see. They close their eyes, as it were. Now, in the big picture, Jesus was, was first welcomed when he was thought to bring, he was the one to bring political deliverance from the Roman rule. But then, as you know, the story, he, he's rejected. Remember how um, uh, uh, um, Palm Sunday turns into the events later in the week. But if you look closely at the very beginning, from birth, Jesus is rejected. Where does he stay? In a stable. Where does he have to go? He has to run for his life in the company, of course, of his parents' arms to Egypt. He's homeless in ministry. Nowhere to lay his head. Next time you and I look down on a homeless person, and those of us that serve at Fairhaven Rescue Mission on a regular basis, we interact with homeless men, just be reminded that for us and for our salvation, our Savior was homeless. He's homeless. He's betrayed by a friend. He's falsely accused by an enemy. He's abandoned by his disciples. He's denied by a friend. He's despised. He's mocked. He's rejected. He's killed. Why do we keep going back to Isaiah 53? Because we have to see that our Savior is a suffering Savior who was rejected, not just unrecognized by the world, he was rejected by his own people. Jesus is both not recognized, and when he is recognized, he's rejected. You see, the great division that split the world in the days of the Old Testament between Jew and Gentile, it, 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 is now going to continue, although it's going to be further defined as between follower and believer in Jesus and those who reject and do not follow him. Even though the, 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 the irreligious who don't recognize him and the religious who, who do but choose uh, to, to not receive him, that's a difference in privilege. It's no difference in fundamental attitude. It's you're either... Not nice and reject Jesus, or you're nice and reject Jesus. You see, Jesus is passively ignored by the irreligious, and he's actively rejected by the religious. Think about his interactions with the religious leaders. Look at where we've been in Acts thus far, and the apostles and their interactions with the council and the other religious leaders. Not only was that true then, it is most certainly true Today, even though a church can gather in the name of Jesus, even though they can sing hymns that for all intents and purposes praise Jesus, people may still reject him. Because Jesus says hard things. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. None of us wants to die, to die to self. And yet, the new life comes from God through faith in Jesus as we die to ourselves. But, that is not the end of the story. Unrecognized, yes. Rejected, yes. 
But he's also received, received by a remnant, by a believing group of people, people who would later be called Christians. Look at verse 12. Children and youth and adults, this is today's Bible word lesson, the word but. Pay attention to the word but, because often but is the announcement of good news. But, in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, Jesus is received by this third group of people. The early church father, Clement of Alexandria, called this fledgling group of people that followed Jesus a third race. They weren't Jewish. They weren't Gentile. They were this third group of people, Christian. It's a new humanity, a new international community of redeemed people. Notice, to all who, believe, but to all who did receive him, it's open to all who did receive him. Um, Ed Clowney in his book, The Church, says this, The church, according to scripture, is not a religious club, a voluntary organi- uh, association of like-minded Christians who cultivate friendship and engage in joint projects. It is rather the institution of Christ and of the Spirit formed by his power and governed by his word. You see, all who did receive him, that's the church. That's the bride of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we mean by receiving? But to all who did receive him, well, the answer is in the second half of the verse, who believed in his name. You see, receiving here is believing in his name, the totality of his person, who he is and his work, what he did. He comes to you, you come to him, you receive and welcome him. You put your life into his hands. That's why I think some of our uh, questions and answers in our shorter catechism are so great. To rest and rely on Jesus. To receive him as he is offered in the gospel. He gave the right to become children of God. The power, the ability... uh, an ability to be who he made them to be. You see, all sinners, we all rebel and are hostile to God and his truth. No one in and of themselves can recognize and receive. You see, the end of the story is not the tragedy of rejection, but rather the grace of acceptance. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here is this new birth. It's described negatively. It's not a man's work, but it's God's decisive, sheer miracle. I think oftentimes we go to John 3 and we see Jesus and Nicodemus and we go, aha, that's the new birth. Of course, he's talking about the mysterious work of the Spirit. But you know, you can see the new birth here who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, it's mysterious. Here's what God must do. He must give new life. He must give birth children. Do any of you guys remember the day you were born? 
Uh-huh, even some older children are trying to think back. Yeah. Nobody remembers because you didn't cause yourself to get born. You see, Jesus has to explain to Nicodemus, a ruler, a teacher, kind of some fundamental truths. And he expresses spiritual reality through physical reality. You must be born again. Nicodemus is thinking, how can you get back in a mother's womb? No, no, Jesus is just talking about that you don't decide to born, be born. It, it, you're on the receiving end of being born. But there is something we must do. We must receive and believe. With this new birth, God puts his life in us and we share his nature, as Peter would go on to explain. Well, what does it mean to be a child of God, to receive Jesus Two things. First, you have God as your father. He loves you as a father. There's an intimate relationship. He promises to protect and to provide. Did you all know that Muslims have 99 names for God? Sure, it's Allah, but they've got a whole bunch of other names. When Jesus was asked, teach us to pray, Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father. As J.I. Packer writes in Knowing God, Father is the Christian name for God. So what does it mean to be a child of God? To receive Jesus first, you have God as your Father. And second, you have the church as your family. You belong to the family of God. You've got God as your Father and you have the church as your family. So what does it mean to be a child of God? To know God as your father. To belong to a family of others who have God as their father. So here in John 1, in the prologue, we see three attitudes toward Jesus that you will see further developed in John's gospel. That he is not recognized, that he is rejected, and that he is received. Well, our text places on us two questions that we've got to ask. One of identity and the other of attitude. First, to which category do you belong? Are you those who don't recognize Jesus? Are you those who reject Jesus? Or are you those who receive Jesus and are resting and relying on him alone for salvation as he's been offered in the gospel? So that's the question of identity. You know, the the census is going to ask us, who are you? I doubt they'll have a question, tell us about your relationship with Jesus, but it's nonetheless something that we each have to answer. And the second is attitude. What is your attitude toward Jesus? Because see, that determines your group. Are are, are you going about life with your ears closed? Are you running around actively resisting? Are your ears covered? You see, there are some people that you look at them on the outside and they're deaf. They cannot hear. There are other people you and I know that are running around like this. Their ears are either closed or their ears are covered. 
But there are others whose ears are open and they hear the call of the gospel. So I talked about three groups. Well, I'm going to make it real simple. There's only two groups of people. People who either reject Jesus or receive him. And I want to end by just thinking about this word receive. You see, the gospel is good news. Why is it good news? Because it's not about us achieving anything. It's only about us receiving someone. You see, it's only by grace that God enables us to recognize Jesus and to receive him as Savior and Lord. You see, the call today from this text, the call from Scripture is this. Come to Jesus and receive what you could never achieve by your own effort on your best days. All of us right now may desire to receive a, to be given a particular Christmas present. A gift that may be really useful and a gift that may glitter for a time. But all of us. All of us need the Christmas presence that is found in Jesus. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the one and only gift that is life-giving and never-ending. My friends, the gift of Jesus has been given. Has it been received? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these verses where we see eternity beginning to break into time. And we thank you, Father, that you have had a plan to rescue your people. And your plan has involved your Son, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves both in his living of a perfect life of obedience, but also in dying a sacrificial and sin-atoning death in our place and on our behalf. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to help us recognize that not only has Jesus come into the world, but to most assuredly say that he has come into my life and changed me. That because of Jesus, I am no longer who I once was. And because of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, I am not yet what I will one day be. Oh, Father, help us even this day to recognize Jesus and to receive him for who he is. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.